Good morning. Great to see you guys here at church this morning. It is always fun for me to be able to uh, preach the word. And I think this is a really fun time of the year to open the Bible together because all of us are in kind of an ambitious mood. We're all looking to be disciplined and set new goals and to achieve something. And actually, I was thinking about it, and our ambitions tell us a lot about ourselves. And one of the things that I want you to think about with me right now is think about what comes to mind when you think of the greatest accomplishment of your life. Maybe it has something to do with sports, or maybe it has something to do with school, or it has something to do with your job, or the amount of money that you made, or the marriage that you have, or the kids that you have. But when you think about that, and think about the way that you talk about that, it tells everyone else a lot about you. It tells us what you value the most, and it tells us who you are at your core. And what we're going to see in this text this morning is what Jesus values most and who he is at his core because he is going to begin to shine the light on what he considers his greatest accomplishment what glorifies him the most. And here's the counterintuitive thing. What Jesus says glorifies him the most is the cross. He says, listen, up to this point, I've been doing some amazing miracles. I've been doing some amazing things. But if you want to see who I am, if you want to see what I value the most, I want you to look with me here. So we're going to see three glories of the cross here this morning. We're going to turn it like a diamond and see it from some different angles. And we're going to see, first of all, that it is a bewildering glory. Look with me again at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Do you remember when Tony taught last week? He showed us that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine the scene. They're at this house and everyone's sitting around a table and one of the people at the table is their friend Lazarus who has just been raised from death. And so everyone at the table is 
thinking about Jesus, could he possibly do anything more glorious than this? This is amazing. Our friend was dead for days. Jesus raised him from death. He's here. The only appropriate response we can have is worship. And Mary is expressing her worship in a very tangible way. She breaks open this bottle of ointment that is worth a year's wages. In today's vernacular, it's worth like $75,000. And she breaks it and begins to wash the feet of Jesus with this expensive ointment to say, you are amazing. You are worthy of my worship. And the specific act that she's responding to is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then Judas chimes in. And Judas says, listen, this isn't an appropriate response to Jesus. What you should have done with something that expensive is you should have sold it and given the money to the poor. Now, at this point, maybe you've heard this story taught this way before. We should be like Mary, not like Judas. We should offer our best to Jesus and to worship him, not be crooks who kind of hide behind this veneer of righteousness, but really have evil hearts. I think that is part of what we're getting at. But what I want you to see in the text is that Jesus says something that is very confusing and bewildering. He doesn't just say, good job, Mary, bad job, Judas. It's much more nuanced than that. And when we understand it, it will make us all have an aha moment about what Jesus loves most. See, what Jesus says is leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And then he says, for the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. So here's what I want you to notice that I'd never seen before in this text, before I studied it this week. Jesus is rebuking Judas directly, and indirectly he is correcting Mary. Here's what he's saying to Mary. You think that the most glorious thing that I could ever do is raise a human being from death. And so you're giving me your best. You're giving me your worship. You're laying everything down at my feet. That's a beautiful thing. But here's what you've missed. The point of my coming was not to raise Lazarus physically from death. My point in coming was to die. See, there's something much more glorious that Jesus is about to do than what he has already done. Then Jesus, of course, rebukes Judas by saying, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Here's an aha moment for me. Jesus is actually rebuking both of them for the same thing. Here's what he's saying. You think, Judas, 
that if we were to give the money to poor, that it would solve the world's problems, that there would no longer be a hunger problem in the world. And Mary thinks that Jesus has solved all of her problems because her brother, who was formerly dead, is now alive. Jesus is saying, listen, both of you, there are temporary problems that are solved by what you are glorifying in me. But the real problem of humanity is sin. What really needs to happen for you to be saved and rescued from this God-forsaken world is for me to die on your behalf, to take the penalty for your sin, to be buried in the ground in your place, and then to raise to new life so that you can be given the Holy Spirit and live eternally. This is amplified in the next several verses where we learn this hilarious fact that the religious leaders are plotting to kill Lazarus. How hilarious is that? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Their response is, this is really giving Jesus a lot of glory. We've got an idea. Let's kill him. Which shows the ridiculousness of their lack of faith, but also points us to this very obvious fact. Even though Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he can still die again. The greatest problem that he has has not been solved. You see, Jesus did not come to put band-aids on bullet holes. He came to heal them. He came to do a deeper work. Now, this is bewildering because this is not how we talk about any other historical leaders, religious or otherwise, in the history of the world. We never think of their death as their greatest accomplishment. Think of somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., Okay, when you think of Martin Luther King Jr. and you think of his greatest moment on this earth, you think of his I have a dream speech. Why do you think of his I have a dream speech? Because it has inspired generations since he gave it to give their lives in a noble cause, the cause of civil rights. But I've never heard anybody say Dr. Martin Luther King's greatest accomplishment was being shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Why? Because him being shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel was a tragedy. It did not accomplish anything. Jesus' death is different. It is the reason that he came. And he wants us to see that and to recognize it, because as we begin to see that and to recognize that, we begin to understand something about the heart of God and something about the real problem that we have. See, the real problem that we have is not the brokenness in our bodies. It's not our financial problems. It's not even our relational problems. There's a deeper problem, and it's called sin. We are separated from a holy God because we have missed the mark by instead of doing what he wants us to do, doing what we want to do. And Jesus came to solve that problem. So it's a bewildering glory. It doesn't make sense to us 
on the surface. The second thing we see in the text is that the glory of the cross is a fruitful glory. Look with me at verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we see in the text that the Jewish nation as a whole is rejecting their Messiah and his message of the cross. And yet, there are some Greeks, that is pagan, secular people, who are outside of the Jewish religion, who are leaning in to what Jesus is doing. And so they're looking for Jesus, and they're saying, can you tell us where Jesus is to Jesus' disciples? And so they finally arrive in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus looks at them, and he gives them this analogy for the kingdom of God. And he says, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He is talking about his death on the cross for their sin. He's saying, listen, I want you to understand this before my death takes place. I want you to understand that my death is not going to be like a person being crushed by an anvil where nothing really good comes from that. It's just over. All the bones are broken. It's laying in the pile. It's disgusting. That's not what my death's going to be like. My death is going to be like a grain of wheat planted. Now, if you think about a seed being planted in the ground, if you don't have the perspective that that seed is going to produce fruit, when you plant that seed in the ground, it feels like a loss. It feels like, why did we just do that? But when you understand that it's not really a loss, that the death of that seed is the means by which fruit is produced, it changes your entire perspective. Jesus is saying that his death will be like a seed being planted into the ground. That yes, a real death will occur, but by means of his death, much fruit will be produced in the lives of his disciples. Because in dying and rising from death, Jesus is not just substituting himself for us. He's also setting us an example of how he wants us to live. 
He wants us each day as Christians to live in this death to life cycle. He wants us to say no to our greatest desires, which by the way, is the exact opposite message than the culture is giving you. The culture says to you, look inside of yourself. Whatever you desire, whoever you think you are, the only way that you can be an authentic human being is by looking inside of yourself and saying, this is who I am, world. And the more what happens inside of you matches what you're projecting into the world, the more fulfilled of a human being you will be. Jesus is saying the exact opposite is true. Your desires are liars. And if you consistently and constantly live according to your own desires, you will ruin your life, you will ruin your soul, and you will end up in hell forever. And Jesus says, instead, I'm going to teach you a new way. It's to say no to yourself and to say yes to King Jesus. And in so doing, your life will be fruitful. Now, I want you to think about this in relation to New Year's resolutions. In relation to all of the resolutions that have been made in this room or any of the things that you've ever accomplished in your life, isn't it true that to make progress, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in dieting or in working out or in a relationship, that one of the foundational principles of that is that you have to say no to instant gratification now so that you can experience a greater reward and a greater goal in the future. See, Jesus isn't just being spiritual here. He's being incredibly practical. He's saying if you want to make progress in any area of your life, and this includes the spiritual, there has to be a definite no to yourself, which is going to be hard for you. But he's saying the only way to make progress in your spiritual life is to see that the greatest act ever accomplished by a human being was happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the God in heaven telling us that we have to say no to ourselves in order to serve him so that he can get what he wants and ignore this principle himself. He's saying, no, I set you an example in the cross of laying down my life. I know what it feels like to say no to myself in the most profound way possible. And I'm telling you that that leads to the most fruitful and happy and joyful life that you can possibly have. Okay, so we see that the cross glorifies Jesus most. Jesus is showing us that it's a bewildering glory, that it's a fruitful glory. And finally, we start to see something staggering. We see a troubling glory. Read with me in verses 27 through 34. This is Jesus talking. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, I say that this is a troubling glory. Because this is the first time in the Gospel of John that we see the soul of Jesus troubled. We've seen him so far healing people. We've seen him walking on water. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him go into a temple and cleanse it with a whip. We've seen the powerful, capable, tender Jesus, but we have not seen the troubled Jesus. And we look in, in this divine mystery, into the soul of Jesus, fully God and fully man. And he says that his soul is troubled. And then he has this conversation with God the Father, and he says, should I say to you, Father, save me from this hour? Should I ask you to save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Whenever Jesus talks about the hour in the Gospel of John, he's talking about the cross. And so we know that Jesus is looking forward in his soul to the cross, and his soul is troubled. Now, what was troubling to Jesus about the cross? Was it the physical pain? The worst way that a human being could possibly die is on a cross. The cross was only reserved for non-Roman citizens. It was considered such an excruciating form of punishment that they would not let a Roman citizen die this way because it was too gruesome. Is Jesus looking at the physical suffering we'll see that there was something far beyond the physical suffering that Jesus was dreading. He tells us more about this starting in verse 31. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus tells us three things that are going to happen when he is on the cross. The first thing he tells us is he, he is going to be the substitute of all of humanity. He dreaded the cross because he's looking at the cross and he's seeing that he is going to take on the sin of the world. You know, people read 
the Old Testament and they think, okay, God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament. And they read the New Testament and they think God went to some counseling and now he's not so mad anymore. But what Jesus is saying is there's far more wrath in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament. It's just all going to be concentrated on Jesus. He is going to take the punishment for the sin of the world on himself. The judgment that each person who has ever lived sins deserve. He is going to absorb that into himself. And that is not going to be a passive punishment. God the Father is going to pour out his wrath, his righteous anger against sin. The way that a judge must punish a criminal, God is going to punish his son on our behalf. So we see that he is a substitute. He also says that the ruler of this world will be cast out. In theological terminology, this is describing Jesus as the victor. See, Jesus on the cross not only came as our substitute to die in our place for our sin, to take on the judgment of God, he also defeated Satan, sin, and death. So I've got good news for you. If you feel like you are in bondage this morning to a power that is beyond your control, you're struggling with night terrors, you're seeing demonic activity, you can't explain anything but by describing yourself as being oppressed. I've got good news for you. Jesus, by his death, defeated Satan. And if you will lay in your bed tonight or bow your head at lunch this afternoon and you will pray in Jesus' name, would that demon or Satan be gone from me, that demon will run for the hills because Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross. And so it's my job as a pastor to proclaim that he has victory, and that you have freedom, and you are not in bondage to your sin or to Satan and his lies anymore. There is a truth speaker, not a liar. His name is Jesus. He says that you are a child of God, that you are loved, that you are chosen, that you are his, and there is no longer any condemnation for you anymore. And finally, we see that Jesus came to die on the cross to draw all people to himself. There's some of us today who are in this room who believe in Jesus. We think that this is good news, but we have somehow excluded ourselves from the kingdom of God, believing that we have done too much that's wrong or that we are not good enough to be part of the kingdom of God. I want you to underline in your Bible or highlight it on your app or whatever you need to do, all people. There is not a person who can out-sin or outrun the grace of God. You cannot possibly exclude yourself because the Son of God said that he came to die on the cross for all people. 
regardless of your background or your ethnicity or the sins that you've committed or how tall or how short or how undisciplined or disciplined or whatever you are, Jesus says that you can come to him because the reason that he came was because people are not good enough to get there themselves. And he was lifted up on the cross to say that the work is finished. You do not have to get to God yourself because Jesus has accomplished that work for you. And the measure of the love of Jesus is the trouble that we see in his soul. See, the reason that Jesus' soul is so troubled is because he is about to be cut off from his father. Now, my wife Melissa and I have been starting this conversation recently, and that's because both of our dads are inching toward the age of 70, okay? And so their health is starting to kind of fall apart. And we're starting to realize that we have less and less time with them on this earth. And so we've both had great dads and we've gotten, you know, 40 plus years with our dads on this earth of great memories And we've sat in our living room at different times with tears in our eyes, thinking about losing our dads. Our souls get troubled by that. Why? 40 years of memories, for that to be cut off is awful to think about. Here's Jesus, an eternity of memories with his father. Always been in joyful fellowship with one another, along with the Holy Spirit in the Trinity since before time began. There had never been a moment where their relationship was ever broken. And Jesus is looking into the future and he is realizing not just that he'll be separated from God, but that God's wrath will be poured out on him. The smile that he has seen literally forever on the face of God, will turn into a frown. And God will punish him for the sin of the world. And Jesus says, that is what glorifies me the most. Because it reveals what Jesus loves the most. And here's what Jesus loves the most. He loves his father most, and this is crazy. I can't get over talking about this. He loves you the most. He loves you. God loves sinners. He he just loves us. We can't even love ourselves. And he looks at this world, this sea of people, these lost and dying people, and he sent his son to rescue you. How should we respond? Jesus tells us in verses 35 through 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, 
he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus is saying, our response to this good news is to walk in the light, not in the darkness. To walk in the light is as simple as owning up. I am a sinful person. My relationship with God is broken. It's my fault. It's to agree with God about the condition of your soul. It's to say to God the most vulnerable thing you can say to someone else. I have been so bad that I am unlovable. And God will say to you, I made a way where there was no way. You see, when we hide and we try to deal with our sin on our own, we dig ourselves a deeper and deeper hole. We get into deeper and deeper darkness. We have to lie to cover our lies. When we own up, we experience the sunlight of God's grace. We walk in his favor. Because Jesus was punished in our place, we now get the smile of God and walk with him from this point forward. So I invite you, whether you are far from God, you've never heard this message before, you've never walked into the light, I invite you into the light. And those of us who have been Christians for a while, we find it hard to stay in the light, don't we? And sometimes we go back into the darkness because we tell ourselves, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to do that stuff anymore. Here's the problem. We still do that stuff. And because we still do that stuff, we still need the gospel and we still need to walk back into the light. So let's pray, and then we're going to take communion and walk into the light together. Jesus, thank you for clarifying for us that you came to die for sinners. The greatest thing that you did is died in our place for our sin on that old Roman cross. And we can't get over that, God. Because we need that message every single day. None of of us is disciplined enough. None of us has accomplished enough, could perform enough to out-need your grace. And so I'm asking God that you would shine your light into this room. As we take communion together, God, would you open up the floodgates of our soul? So that we can admit, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time, that we need the love of God to cover our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.